Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello there, and welcome back to school. Um, in particular, the Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students radio program sponsored by Lives in the Balance. Dr. Ross Green here coming to you live, as always, from the offices of Lives in the Balance in Portland, Maine. I am delighted to be back with you again for another season of um, monthly web-based radio programs. As always, I will be joined by our four principals, two from British Columbia, two from Maine, and um, we're looking forward to another wonderful year. If you want to call in, that number is 646-727-2691, but as we do every year at the beginning here, let's check in with our panel of principals, all of whom are back at school and ready and raring to go here to tell us what they're doing in their buildings. And then, because this is only monthly now as opposed to weekly, perhaps to respond to some of the emails that have accumulated from other educators who are um, trying to get rolling with the collaborative and proactive solutions model or are actively implementing it in their schools. So I would like to say hello to Carol. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am doing well. And Susan, how are you? Good, thank you. Good. And I think we, I, I don't know if we have Nina or Tom with us so far. Who have we got? Tom. That's what I thought. I thought I recognized the phone number. Welcome back to all of you. We'll, we'll get Nina on the line should she happen to call in. How is the school year starting for all of you? Um, and uh, since we don't want people stepping all over each other, let's start with our British Columbia contingent. Susan, how are things going at the beginning of the school year here? Well, things aren't going very well up here in British Columbia. We are on a massive teacher strike. So the whole province of British Columbia has not started back into school. They were on strike for 17 days in June and have come back in strike uh, on, yeah, striking. So we don't have any students in the school. Carol and I are in our buildings. We are ready, but there are no teachers, and so we are waiting to see what happens. Carol, did you want to add to that? Uh, I think you've pretty much wrapped it up in a little nutshell. <laughs> this yeah. comes up from time to time, doesn't it, when the teachers um, are unhappy with the circumstances of their employment and um, don't come back to work. This is a first here in British Columbia in a very, very long time that we haven't opened schools. Um, we have had strikes for sure, like everybody else, in the middle of the year, but um, not starting the year. So this is a very unusual situation for us. And what are the odds for this getting settled soon? Uh, if, well. you were, <laughs> yeah, if you were to ask us on Friday, we'd say it looked pretty hopeful. But there's some 
sort of extenuating circumstances. Carol, did you want yeah, to? Yeah, there's, there's that. Yeah, sure. There's. I'll, I'll try and be succinct because it's very, it's rather complex actually. Um, it has to do. It hinges on a court case actually that our um, teachers union uh, won and then uh, was appealed and won again, and the government is appealing again. Whether um, I know that different states have had class size and composition language in legislation. So our government put some language in legislation, the Teachers' Federation fought and won that it should be in their collective agreement as a working condition. And so essentially we all feel like they're waiting for the court appeal to be heard, which is not scheduled to be heard until mid-October. So we're hoping that there can be found some way to get students and teachers back in classes before then, but we've been we've had our hopes up and been disappointed a few times, so I think we're all just kind of numb <laughs> at the moment. Mm-hmm. Goodness. Mm-hmm. And so fascinating. We we don't have that here. It's actually it can't happen. So it's really yeah. interesting. Do you have do you have class size legislation like a class size reduction strategy? No, we actually just have laws that teachers can't formally strike. They can do what's called right. uh, uh, um, work to rule. Right. So in other words, they'll come in at at uh, right at 8:45 and leave immediately at 3:15. Yeah. But they can't strike because the kids, you know. Yeah, back in the 90s was when our our teachers used to have that, we used to have that same uh, process here, and then in the 90s um, it changed. So it's definitely um, a stressful situation, but we are all hoping that things can get back to some uh, semblance of normal soon. It was interesting. I was talking to um, part of my staff this morning because they come in three different groups throughout the day about how the government and the BCTF, the Teachers Federation, should be using CPS to come to <laughs> a negotiated solve their differences. <laughs> yes, get it out on the table, and I'll talk about it in a, you know, figure out what's going on. But uh, it's very interesting times here in British Columbia. Goodness. Um, is all I can say. And, boy, I sure hope it doesn't take until mid-October before um, there's action on this. Us too. We do have a caller from British Columbia. Goody. Um, I don't know what this is about, but um, callers take priority on this program. This could be a very interesting program today, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's, let's see what we have here. Area code 604, you're on the air. What's on your mind? Mm-hmm. Caller, is there something you wanted to say? Well, I've uh, just disconnected the caller. Maybe that's not a bad thing. They might um, not. Maybe they were on speaker. I'm sorry. Well, there's no there's no time lag on this program, so they um, were hearing us as we were saying it. Um, well, um, I certainly hope that you all get kids and teachers back in school in British Columbia sooner than later. This is the entire province, eh? Entire yep. province. That's a lot of kids and a lot of teachers who aren't in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are they likely to extend the school year to compensate, or um, will there just simply be an enormous amount of catching up to do? I think it depends on how, how long it goes. I mean, it's, it's only been, we've really only lost 
to date five days, five school days, because uh, we would have mm-hmm. started last Tuesday. Um, if it goes more than a couple of weeks, I think there will be discussions about that. But we're not there yet, and we're trying not to panic. <laughs> it, I've it, got my it, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy kind of person. I've got my towel. I've got my hitchhiker's guide. Don't uh, panic. Yeah, it's just such a weird feeling, Ross. It's just so weird to be in your schools and not be super excited because the kids are here and the teachers are here. It's just such a weird a weird feeling. Well, it puts all the excitement on hold and it adds a dimension to it that uh, isn't so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as always, there are, cons- you know, this is the interesting thing that I think Carol said that people should be applying collaborative and proactive solutions um, no one knows better than me that when things go legal, um, you are throwing your fate to the wind. Sometimes things go legal because people feel that they don't have much choice but to go in that direction. But um, in most scenarios, it seems like if both parties are willing um, to come to the table and be honest and work toward a mutually satisfactory solution, then it seems like it should be possible to get the concerns of both parties addressed. Mm -hmm. Um, But that does require a willingness on the part of both parties to hear the concerns of both sides and to be devoted to the effort of working toward a mutually satisfactory solution. Um, Sometimes things go legal because that willingness isn't there um, or because one party or the other is, Um, feeling better about their chances in the legal system than they are devoted to working toward a mutually satisfactory solution that addresses the concerns of both parties. Um, This is something with which I have become extremely well acquainted, regrettably, but um, I'm sorry that British Columbia is going through it now. You know, whenever there's a scenario like this, it's usually pretty apparent that um, the legal system usually isn't very good at coming up with mutually satisfactory solutions. It wasn't designed to, really. Um, in fact, it was designed to be adversarial. So it's always a real shame when things get to that point. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Um, but now here's the interesting thing. We do have some emails to respond to. Shall we, shall we embark on that at this point? You bet. Sure. Sure. All right. Here we go. Um, We'll get your way in on this, and I'm happy to pitch in as well. This is to me. Dr. Green, I read your book, Lost at School, and we'll reread it over the summer. So this was sent um, before we could get to it at the end of last school year. I teach kindergarten and have utilized the plans. I work with students to create contracts with their input. I've had a very difficult class this year with multiple students with obvious lagging skills. When one becomes distracted, then the others feed off of that negative behavior. I have not done contracts with all, but three of the six. I've also taught lagging skills in small groups, but I feel like I have not made much progress. Can lagging skills be impacted by immaturity? How do I overcome that so the student can make progress? How can I address the lagging skill of joining in with inappropriate behavior? Finally, 
how do I help a child with lagging skills when the child has no interest in school, does not see the importance, or is indifferent to consequences? Thank you. So um, this is a classroom teacher, obviously in a classroom that is oriented around six kids with um, social, emotional, and behavioral challenges, um, doing contracts for some but not for all, teaching lagging skills in small groups, and I've got some opinions on some of these things, but we'll let you all weigh in first, and is attributing, it sounds like, I don't want to make too much out of six sentences, but is attributing some of the difficulty in teaching lagging skills in groups to immaturity and has some specific questions. How can immaturity be overcome so the student can make progress? How can the lagging skill of joining in with inappropriate behavior be addressed? And what do you do with a kid who seems to have no interest in school, doesn't see the importance, and is indifferent to consequences? So that's pretty loaded with um, possible input from you all. But um, let's hear what you all have to say about that, and then I'll weigh in a little bit too. Anybody want to give it a whirl? Um, well, from my perspective, she hasn't, well, I, I don't want to speak for her, but the LSEP is so incredibly important before you start teaching the lagging skills. So I'm, I'm, I guess I have a wonder, is has she done any of the LSEPs with each child or, or with uh, somebody helping her go through it so they can kind of figure out um, where to start? Sort of that's, that would be... I know that's what we struggled with at our school. We were um, jumping right into going into Plan Bs and, and doing things like that without doing the LSUP and how incredibly important and critical that process was for us. My expression is it all starts with the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Mm -hmm. Carol or Tom, any, any more weigh-in here? Oh, I thought I got lost for a sec. Um, no, I think Susan's dead on. I mean, it sounds like, you know, I have to come back to the fact that she said that these were kindergarten students. Is that right? Um, teach kindergarten, yes. Okay. So, and, and then the, the letter writer mentioned, um, can lagging skills be impacted by immaturity? I think what we have to look at here is that what's, what's kind of developmentally appropriate, and when we're looking at what, uh, at lagging skills, we're, we're looking at what would be considered developmentally appropriate for that age, and then looking at what might be lagging. So, you know, I'm thinking about five-year-olds and, you know, that somebody's got the sillies and the other ones around them are going to get the sillies. Some of them mentally appropriate, but I think um, by doing the ALSEP, it would really help that teacher pinpoint specifically those skills that should be there and, and aren't, and to work on teaching them. Yes, one thing's for certain, immaturity wouldn't be considered a lagging skill. Immaturity right. like, like anxiety um, or easily frustrated would be too global um, but the ALSEP has a list of pretty specific lagging skills on it. Um, and so if we're trying to overcome immaturity, we may be trying to overcome something that is so vague that it really can't be worked on directly. Um, 
And I've seen that happen frequently. Sometimes we adults come up with um, explanations for why a kid is having difficulty that are so vague that it leaves us really with, nothing, with sand through our fingers in terms of what it is that we're going to work on. But when we come up with a very specific list of unsolved problems, all of a sudden, it's not sand in our fingers. What we have in our hands are the very specific expectations that a student is having difficulty meeting. And here's what I'm betting. I'm betting that when this kindergarten teacher starts to talk with her students about those very specific unsolved problems, none of them are going to say that immaturity is what is making it difficult for them to meet those expectations. They're all going to say something else. And whatever that something else is, is going to be very informative and give the teacher a much clearer sense about what really needs to be worked on and what concern or perspective or point of view and what information the student is providing us about what's getting in the way. Similarly, joining in with inappropriate behavior is not a lagging skill. Inappropriate behavior occurs in response to specific unsolved problems. If we don't know what those unsolved problems are, um, then all we really have to work in is joining in on inappropriate behavior, and I don't know how to work on that. I do know how to work on these specific unsolved problems that are causing the inappropriate behavior and that are causing other kids to also join in. So, Susan, your... Um, idea that this really needs to begin with the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems feels to me to be spot on. Tom, any thoughts? Yeah, I was thinking that this, a similar line, um, I guess what I was thinking was just um, it, the email was, was um, something that I would commonly hear from a kindergarten group or a teacher. Um, there's a common theme, which is that kind of everything was clumped together. So, you know, we've talked about that before, Ross, that, you know, you've got to unclump it because I don't really know, if I were to approach this, I would want to fill out the also, but then also know specifically, um, find a ex specific example of when the student either engaged in, in inappropriate behavior, kind of got pulled into inappropriate behavior by other kids kind of following or leading and, and work to solve that. And I think we've talked about this before, Ross, that I kind of, one day I was at one of your workshops and I just said, you know, <clears throat> kind of had an epiphany that solve one or you solve none. So pick one and, and work on that and I think that you'll find that you'll get more results, but also the idea that the skills are then transferable. Um, I do think, I had a question though that, that came up. Uh, uh, did you want to, I don't want to lead us astray, did, did what I say just kind of carry the, a similar message, Ross, or was there anything else that, but I, I do have a question too was great, but let's get your question. Okay, so my question is this. I, I kind of get the sense sometime, and this is just an observation, it's not based on any clinical data or anything, just that a lot of lagging skills and unsolved problems kind of in some ways could be described as immaturity. That, that um, um, there's, a, there's a whole, you know, and I love how your, your background behind the ALSA, which we don't probably need to go into in detail, does kind of deal with a lot of executive functioning things and other things that, you know, theories and, and approaches. But, but a lot of times I think that what happens is, is collaborative and proactive solutions creates an environment by which people can mature emotionally and take responsibility for their piece of a situation 
and the adult is mature enough to take a piece, their piece, and then work on it together, whereas I think the old school model was, I'm the boss and you'll do it or else, plan A. So I, I think that, that in some ways, there's a lot of maturity in CPS, or a lot of maturing that gets done through that process. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on that perspective, because it, had, it hadn't occurred to me before this program. Well, I think you're hitting the nail on the head, but if, if I was to ask, what is immaturity? Um, my answer would be immaturity is a kid who hasn't developed the skills that, in a certain realm that we would expect a kid to develop by a certain age. Um, I might call that developmental variability rather than immaturity. But I guess for me, the main point is calling it immaturity, number one, makes it sound like it's all about the kid, when in fact it takes two to tango. Um, a lagging skill only produces an unsolved problem if there's an expectation adults have of a kid that he's having difficulty meeting. So as I always say, if a kid with a lagging skill lived alone in the woods, there wouldn't be any unmet expectations because nobody's... Uh, right. imposing expectations on the kid. So then the lagging skill, you know, is, is less crucial, similar to a tree falling in the woods, I suppose. Um, but that's what immaturity means to me. This kid is lacking skills that we would expect to develop by the age that he's at, and that lagging skill is making it difficult for him to meet expectations that we have of kids at that age, and those are called unsolved problems. So bottom line for me is if somebody says the word immaturity, my usual response is going to be, what are you talking about? Let's get our else about, and you can tell me the exact skills that you feel are lagging for this kid and yeah. the exact expectation yep. that he's having difficulty meeting because of those lagging skills. What do you all and think? I think? I think that's good. Can I just quickly follow up? Uh, the, the, the thing that I've noticed is that there's a variable in the situation with classrooms, and I heard this in this person's email, which is essentially that the student, um, the student has, I can't remember the exact language, but essentially the student doesn't really care about school or following rules. Was that, well, can you read that sentence again? I just wanted to make sure I got it right. I can. Um, how do I help a child with lagging skills when the child has no interest in school, does not see the importance or is indifferent to consequences. See, and, and I, I think that, that that person is, is probably really cares about children and recognizes that the indifference to consequences, um, I guess what I wanted to say is just that I'm not convinced that any child is indifferent to consequences. It's that consequences aren't, aren't effective for this child. And so what I was thinking is if consequences aren't effective, that tells me that there's a core issue with the child's relationship with others or adults in the world, not just the school, and that, that starting by hearing their concerns or perspective would help to build that relationship so that then consequences may, may have some, some meaning. But I think that when you feel like the whole world's out to get you, who cares? So I just wanted to kind of bring out that little piece about the motivation. And, and another piece of that is also um, we've talked before about, you know, you have this really funny saying, inconsistent something parenting cracks me up. But the bottom line is that some kids can do well even if everyone around them isn't consistent. 
and some kids can't do well when everyone's inconsistent. So the question is, if, if this child needs consistency, which many children who are struggling behaviorally, they do need consistency, because it would be logical that you would need to experience consistency prior to being able to handle inconsistency, so you have a framework for it. I could be wrong about that. It's just a gut feeling, but, but I think the long and short of this whole thing is that, that um, he, if, if, if he's projecting as if he doesn't care, then the place to start is by building a relationship, and that's what can help to eventually build caring, but he probably didn't get that way in a year, so I wouldn't expect that we're going to solve all of his problems in four months or something. I mean, you've got you to work with him for a while, you know. Carol or Susan, any thoughts yeah. on this? I have some, but I want to go last. Yeah, well, I, I was just uh, going to say it's it's interesting um, when uh, uh, we were talking about, Tom was mentioning motivation. I was just watching a video that I, I hadn't watched. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Lavoie, and he did uh, the yep. – very classic workshop, the Fat City Workshop about learning disabilities, and he has another called the Motivation Breakthrough. So I was just watching that this morning, professional development during my time here. And um, <laughs> what uh, I, I wrote, I actually wrote down a few little points that he made because they were they just kind of struck me as things that I wanted to remember. And one of the things that he mentioned was that punishment doesn't eliminate behavior; it only represses it. It moves it to another location or with another, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a different situation. It also models aggression, and it doesn't generalize to other situations, which, he's, which I was quite surprised to hear this differentiation. When we give um, punishment or negative feedback, um, it, students may, they may react initially in the way that we want them to in the short term, but it doesn't generalize to another situation. So if, you know, if a child is joining in on some inappropriate behavior uh, in one, with say one particular child is acting inappropriately and another child is, is joining in, and the teacher imposes some kind of consequences or whatever, it may um, have a short-term effect on that child not repeating that same behavior when that kid be- misbehaves. But if a different child is acting inappropriately, the, you know, the joiner inner may not generalize and say, well, now I shouldn't join in with that behavior. However, positive feedback does generalize. So if we take the time, as you mentioned, Tom, to sit with the child, build that relationship, um, have a positive experience in solving that problem together and the child getting some feedback from the teacher that they are capable of solving the problem and that they are capable of, of moving forward and meeting the expectations, then that will more likely generalize to other situations. So just a few pieces there that kind of clicked together for me while you were talking. That's good. Good. I think that is one of the <coughs> powerful things that comes out of teachers who can actually successfully do CPS is that very positive bonding relationship that they now create with their students. And I think that just creates such an atmosphere for learning and just growing. That um, I know that that's one of the biggest things that came out of so many of our classrooms um, at my school with the teachers saying that they had no idea that they could I don't know, have this powerful impact with kids through the relationships that they were building mm-hmm. caused because of the ALSUP that they had done and the Plan Bs and all the discussions that they'd had with the kids. So I totally agree with Richard Lavoie and your point, Carol, and yours too, Tom. I think it, that relationships are paramount in, in what we can do at school and with kids. If you study the, the first six weeks of school research, I mean, that's what it's all about. It's not just about the relationship of the teacher. 
mm-hmm. to the child, which I think we always go there as professionals because we think it's all about naturally about us. We kind of lead, <laughs> you know, that we, we lead the, the staff, the staff leads the kids. And I'd like to think that it's also about the kid-to-kid relationships and, and the, the, uh, the team building in there. But, you know, I was telling Ross the other day, I've been reading this great book about motivation and, and um, um, Drive by Daniel Pink. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. If you haven't read it yet, it's it's great, but it, it you know it's so closely aligned to the work that we're doing to support people through collaborative and proactive solutions. It's stunning. Mm. The 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 I bought the audio book and I kept thinking, oh, should I text Ross now? <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I just gave up and said, hey, you got to read this book and then we'll talk after. You know, so. So what um, is it called? Motivation and. A drive, drive by Daniel Pink. Just just a one word title drive. The one word. D R I V E. D R I V E. Cool. But the motivation here is so complex. You know what I'm seeing in this email is some assumptions related to why the students are having difficulty, immaturity. Um, I'm seeing potentially someone, and I don't want to make assumptions based on six lines, but seeing someone, because of the use of contracts and because of the belief that the child is not seeing the importance or is indifferent to consequences, I'm going to assume that we're talking about adult-imposed consequences. One of the things that I find is that the students who are responding to adult-imposed consequences are not the students that people are asking me about because they're responding. The big question is, are they really responding? And this is, of course, Tom and I could have a three-hour discussion about this and not settle it, but I'm going to see if we go in that direction for the last 15 minutes here. (laughs) Um, And it won't be settled in 15 minutes either, but um, uh, I think that the kids who are responding to consequences really don't need the consequences. They may need structure. Mm -hmm. They may need to know what's expected. But it's not clear to me that they need adult-imposed consequences. And that raises the interesting topic. And this this is fresh in my mind because of a behavior plan that I read this morning that is all about adult imposed consequences. Um, it is the it is vintage. I could read some of it, but probably don't need to. It is a vintage behavior plan. It um, is all about uh, adult imposed consequences. What what the kid gets if he meets expectations, and what's going to happen to him if he doesn't. So this raises the interesting question: How important are the adult imposed consequences in um, managing a classroom? and in managing a school. And it is on that point that Tom and I sometimes don't see eye to eye, and that's okay. Um, but I'm interested in getting everybody's way in here. Um, do schools really need adult-imposed consequences as part of the picture for, things to, for kids to meet our expectations and as a necessary tool for helping those who are not meeting our expectations meet our expectations. Uh, I guess I have to respond because 
uh, it's the three-hour conversation in 15 minutes. Uh, if I didn't, I noticed everyone was like, uh, "Do I really want to get in the middle of this?" Um, I'm not going to say that. I, I, the jury's out on this one, Ross. I think I think we've had some good That's conversations, right. and I have to say that that I'm not necessarily. I, I think that that it is really hard to say because I don't like to subscribe to anything with any kind of finality such as, yes, schools have to have adult-imposed consequences or they will like fail miserably. I think that schools, if I were to subscribe to anything in, in like a really hard line, so to speak, it would be more that schools have to have clearly defined expectations for um, culture so that people understand the way that we work together to build healthy relationships. And I think it would be fair to say that, that if people are, have lagging skills or unsolved problems that get in the way of doing that, then we have to work to solve those problems. The part that I struggle with is more along the lines that I, I've kind of seen it happen where if somebody isn't quite skilled enough at getting those relationships to click and glow, then if they don't have some consequences, um, they'll lose the 80 to 85% that would naturally do well anyway. So what I've seen is that, that if, if, you can, if, you can, if you can get things to really click and use things such as responsive classroom or really good Columbia University Teachers College teaching practices have really engaging instruction and, and high levels of energy and, and commitment and engagement in the classroom, you don't have management problems. I don't see those people keeping kids in for recess. Mm -hmm. If you're a good, great teacher, you're not going to have problems with adult-imposed consequences. You're almost never going to use them. So I think that it's important to recognize that, that, that my opinion is that adult-imposed consequences have a place sometimes in a developing professional's career. I have seen classrooms where the teacher isn't able to engage the students and create the correct culture and was trying to implement collaborative problem solving and couldn't manage anything during the day. Or, or whatever the model is now called. I'm so shit. I've been doing so good, Ross. Said <laughs> <laughs> a naughty word on your radio program just now. Um, so, so anyway, I just think it's really important to recognize that, that collaborative and proactive solutions um, can, can lend itself to creating that culture, but there is a, an element of the skill of the professional involved that could factor in. And I think if the person's skill isn't high enough, then it could devolve into a major mess. But that's a very, I want to let Carol and Susan weigh in here, but that's a very, I don't disagree with anything you just said. Um, if I was to paraphrase what you just said, maybe in a way that you wouldn't like, it would be that adults often resort to adult-imposed consequences um, when there are more complicated things going wrong in a classroom and in a school. And if those things weren't going wrong, then there wouldn't be the need for adult-imposed consequences. That a fair paraphrase? I think it's pretty close, except that the one place where we, we get into the, this is the three-hour conversation is, <laughs> I've seen a kid that I really truly thought, with all my heart, I've seen a couple of kids that I thought needed to possibly be referred for um, major behavioral supports, like emotional issues. And I've even had an instance where we moved one of those students to a highly structured, somewhat plan A classroom to see how things would go. And the kid did way, way better. 
But the teacher also had highly engaging and very, very strong instructional practices. So I think that in the initial phase, the student needed to know these are the expectations and I'm not going to budge. Um, there's nothing you can do to pull me off this. But then also the class was super engaging and, and very healthy. So I can't pull apart. I can't, I can't declump, so to speak, which by the way, I always think of cat litter when you say that. But when I <laughs> pull, pull apart, I can't pull I'm apart all the issues. visual and olfactory imagery. Yeah, I know, man. I know. I know. The, the declumping thing, I think we've got to find another term for that. Can we do, do like, a, I don't know, like spaghetti squash or something? You pull the whole thing, you know? I'm, stick, I'm sticking with it. What, what uh, visual and olfactory imagery it pulls up for you is totally up to you. You'll okay, have to that's fine. So anyway, I can't declump this one to figure out what's the plan A and what's the plan B and what's the really good instruction. So that's why the jury's out. I'm still watching it all, and I'm keeping a very open mind. Susan and Carol, help us out here. You know, it's interesting. I listened to um, a radio program with both you, you, you Tom, and uh, Ross on the weekend, and it was a 2011 one, and it was the same conversation. And <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to hear you now because you both – you both slightly changed, but not totally on your opinions on it. You've just reworded it in a different way, which is which is great. And I think it's awesome that you it, this isn't something that you maybe necessarily both totally agree on, but the basis is the same. Like I I, I don't really hear a huge difference in what yeah. most of you are saying because really what it comes down to is what works best for those children, and the the child is what our focus is on. And I don't know. I just I do know that we need to do what's best for kids, and it's not always the same. And we need to meet them where they're at and move them forward in whatever way we can. And and I always have thought, and I don't know whether my view might change on this too, but rules are always there to fall back on if you can't figure out something else to do. So um, I think here, at least I know in British Columbia, and Carol, I know you'll agree, we need to have a code of conduct that states what we will do in certain circumstances with kids. Uh, is a legality that we have to have in our code of conduct and the different levels that we will go to, and it, and it all bases around safety. So um, I agree with both of you. I, I know that sounds you know, pretty cheap, but I do agree with both of you. That's <laughs> okay. You can use the Bill Clinton. I, I use it as skiing. I, I say, I, I, people say, which, which mountain's your favorite? I say, hey, the one with the powder. I don't care. <laughs> exactly. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> Um, Tom never knows when an opportunity to go snow skiing is going to break out. Right, I live in he Maine. Skis, he has his board with him at all times. <laughs> I, love it. I love it. Carol, any? Uh, no, that's because I was with a uh, superintendent in um, uh, Ontario on Friday, and I noticed that he had his golf clubs in his car, and he had an expression that I hadn't heard of before. He said, um, you never know when a golf game is going to break out. Um, so he has to have them. He has to have them with them at all. With him at all times. Carol, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I know that. Um, I think Susan, you know, she and I are pretty closely aligned in in what we think about kids. But she, I think she um, hit the nail on the head with saying that it's if you know the student, if you've built that relationship with them, it's almost like situation by situation. You you have you know in that moment what that child needs, and sometimes they need just uh, an accountability check of, 
no, you, you do need to do this, as Tom was saying. Like, this is, this is the expectation, and I do know that you can meet it, and so you need to do it. Um, and other times, you know, there is something more complex going on, and you need to take the time to, to uh, tease the strands apart and figure out what that is. So, you know, I was she didn't about, say to clump. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't clump. <laughs> uh, I, like the, I like the spaghetti squash analogy. Oh, you did? You know, yeah, you I, got that? <laughs> yeah. I went, Sorry, to, uh, I went to an institute on response to inter- intervention last spring, and, and one of the things they talked about was the difference between skill and will interventions. And sometimes um, if it's, a, if it's a, just a kid just saying, you know, I just don't want to, if it's an accountability measure, you know, you didn't finish your homework, you can finish your homework, you just need to go finish your homework. Um, so here's a room where you can go finish your homework with the other kids. Or if it's a skill intervention when they actually need to be taught how to meet that expectation. So... I think that's where it would come down to for me, knowing the student, taking into account the context of the of the situation, and then proceeding from there. Well, and the part I can sit that, on the, um, the the part that interests me is um, if you're going to make a mistake, which mistake do you want to make? Right. And um, if a student is not meeting an expectation, the difficulty I have is that we adults are often wrong in our assumption that he can. It is extremely common for me to hear on a problem that hasn't been solved yet and on a chronic problem, we know he can do it. And um, we know he can do it when we're talking about something that a student is chronically not doing. The statement, we know he can do it, is a very interesting one to me because if we know he can do it, just because he has occasionally done it or because he's sometimes able to do it mm-hmm. is one that kind of sends me but in the wrong direction. Um, so here's my attitude. If we are assuming that there's something getting in the way for the kid doing it and we explore that with the kid, every once in a while the kid says, you know what, it's just really boring. I really don't like doing it. I wish there was a way to make it more interesting. But we're still getting interesting information about what's getting in the way of the kid doing it. And so the only part of this that I would massage a little bit is that I think that there's more danger in assuming he can do it when he really can't, when when there's something really getting in his way, than there is in exploring with him what's getting in his way, even if he could do it if he just put his mind to it. I think that we think he can do it if he just put his mind to it way more often than is really true, and I think there's no downside to the exploration part, in which case, and that's, that's basically just my very practical mindset on, um, I think we need to be really cautious about assuming a kid could do it, because I've seen way too many instances in which people said, I know he can do it, and that was incorrect. Can I, okay, we've what only got two minutes left. So I got, I got to take my three-hour conversation. We've got the whole next program planned. Here it is. Ding, round two. Um, Ross, you, you, this, this is it. You, you hit it. You, you got it. Like, this is where our, our quote, you know, very jokingly, the rub is between us about this. I would say, assume that they can first. That's it. We've got to talk about this. I'm so excited because I'm probably going to learn a lot by working with you on this because... I, I certainly, there's research and things, but there's also this, this amazing gut instinct that really good educators have, and I think that that needs to be put into account 
But I do think that there's a point where there's a tone issue here. So if you say to a child, you know what, Johnny, I know you can do this. I believe in you. I care about you. We're not going to stop until we get this done. Okay, we're going to get it done together. Versus, I can't believe you're acting like this and I'm not going to put up with this. So we have to be, be cognizant of the fact that if you hold a kid accountable to an expectation with a gentle tone and a kind hand, that's very different than a very authoritative top-down thing. So I think that there's really three angles on this. One is the perspective that you gave, Ross, that don't err on the side of, of, of you know, go to the side of solving the problem together first. I'm kind of saying you could hold them accountable first, see how that goes, and if it doesn't work, go, go deeper into the, the, the CPS model. And, but then there's also the tone by which you hold them accountable and move forward. And I think I used up my last minute. But anyway, if we could talk about this at a future program, or I'll just meet you down at Gritty's. I mean, I just want to talk, you know? Oh, important that's topic. fair. I want, to go, I want to meet you down at Gritty's, too. Yeah, it's fun. Well, that's because you guys still drink beer, and I don't anymore. But on that note... We're, we now know our next program, and we're going to call it a day for today so we can end this program on time. That sound okay? Sounds fine, Ross. Yep. Thanks. That was fun. Thanks, all. Bye-bye. I hope that you're all back at work sooner than the middle of October. Thank Take you. care. Thank you.